standing for the reading of Scripture, which you'll find in Mark chapter 7. We return back to our exposition of straight talk about Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And we continue in chapter 7, picking up this morning, verses 17 through 23. The Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 7, beginning in verse, verse 17. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. When he, Jesus, had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lawlessness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scripture there this morning. Please be seated. Food fads come and go. I've heard of a time here in America when there were no drive through hamburger portals, there were no pizzeria space stations, and there were no mutant chicken wings in 25 different flavors. Do you remember such a time? Or have you heard of it? Uh, Now, I want to give you this disclaimer this morning. I'm aware that healthy food, nutrition, and medicine research based on plants and foods can be a legitimate way of loving our neighbor. I'm grateful. I've told you before, uh, I want to eat healthy food. But I also understand the limitations of some of these things. There is a persistent search to find foods with secret powers. Uh, Secret powers that surpass human limitations by transcendence into the spiritual or the God realm. I I hope I'm not telling you something you're not aware of. It's all around us. It has been for uh, generations and continues to be people looking for secret foods with powers. External things that can give them the satisfaction for the desire for God that is within the human consciousness. It staggers the imagination that there are millions of people, I'm not just talking about historically, I'm talking about even today around the world, there are millions of people that believe that there are foods, there is edible stuff with secret powers, and this is promoted by religions, it's promoted by cults, it's promoted by popular culture, and there are many examples all around us Uh, perhaps you have heard of the concern of the rhinoceros and the the threat of the endangerment and the loss of the rhinoceros, the the African rhinoceros. It's not from overhunting. It's from poaching. You know why? Because there is this superstition that rhinoceros horn has secret powers. And poachers destroy the rhinoceros to take its horn. Uh, Some wildlife biologists have tried to protect it by putting them to sleep with a tranquilizer and cutting their horns off so that the poachers can't have anything to take, trying to preserve the rhinoceros. Do you know that the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, warns us about sorcery and witchcraft and dabbling in the, the, the magics Uh, claims of the world. Do you know what the Greek word that's translated sorcery is? Pharmakeia. 
from which we get the word pharmacy. Because it's through drugs that people seek an altered state and an ability to transcend their human limitations. So this has been a long-standing issue. Uh, Do you know that the Bible repeatedly warns against these kinds of superstitions? Uh, I don't have time to give you the multiple references this morning. I, I actually thought this would be a good study to do sometime. How often, just in the New Testament, for example, there, we are warned against the superstitions of seeking power foods and magic or supernatural superstitious connections with food. It, it, it should get your attention because it's a common theme that the Bible warns us against. So we continue in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 7. Here we're listening to the Lord Jesus, studying his life, and seeing that the Gospel purifies from the corruption of external man-made religious traditions, of self-righteous rules and rituals. And the Gospel clarifies the need for the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. We sort of summarize this by the conflict between self-righteousness by law works versus God's righteousness by faith, by grace faith. And yes, that is a part of the teaching of the Lord Jesus. There are those who want to deny it and say that, that, that's a misunderstanding, that really wasn't the conflict. Yes, it is the conflict. And it continues to be the conflict. The conflict between self-righteousness by law works or even man-made superstitions and applications of rules and regulations. But nonetheless, some kind of outward effort at self-righteousness versus the need for God's, what, what Luther called alien righteousness, transferred righteousness, righteousness that is not from us, but righteousness that we must receive. And that righteousness is by grace faith. And it only comes from the one who pleased God, who himself is God, and that is Jesus Christ. And of course, the world hates that exclusive claim, but it is the claim of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners. You can't be saved any other way. Now we looked at the first part of uh, Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 16 to see that Jesus preached the law word of God. He referenced uh, the Old Testament in Isaiah and in the law of Moses uh, that God gave to Moses. So Jesus preached the law word of God and applied the new covenant gospel by first clarifying that sin is sourced in the human heart. I told you that that's a challenging thing in Jesus' day. He was cutting through the superstition and the false views and the false teaching. And he was saying sin is sourced in the human heart. We need to realize and appreciate that. That is still the message that needs to be preached and clarified today. Many people are in darkness. Thinking sin is in outward things. If they can simply reduce or restrict or somehow remove themselves from sinful things. But no, sin is not an outward sinful thing. Sin is in the heart, the human heart. Man-made rules and rituals of outward washings cannot purify the corruption of the sin-hardened heart shown in all manner of self-righteousness disguised as religious piety. That's what Jesus first deals with in verses 1 through 16. Now that brings us to verses 17 through 23. We pick up this scripture that we read this morning that Jesus protests against his disciples' confusion over the basics of the New Covenant Gospel, clarifying the need for heart purification, affecting the supernatural essence of the soul. Do you know that? Do you get it? Are you clear about that? That it must be through the power of the work of the Holy Spirit of God in applying what Christ has done, and what we refer to as active and as passive obedience, in His sinlessness, 
tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Dealing with the, the principles and issues of sin. You know, uh, Jesus wasn't tempted for something that was uh, corrupting through the uh, laptop because he didn't have a laptop. But he was tempted with the same principle of sin, of corruption, and whatever it might be that can be accessed through a laptop. You get the point there, I hope. But see, Jesus protests here against his disciples' confusion over the basics of the new covenant gospel. And clarifying the need for heart purification. And it's this heart purification that affects the supernatural essence of the soul. Not things that are outward. Sin's corruption is not in outward things. We need to hear that. We need to latch on to it. As I said, millions of people around the world need to hear this. Sin is not in outward things. Not in food or drink Personal or household items, not in clothing or furniture. That was referenced back in verse 4 and verse 8. Sin is not in these things. Sin is sourced in the human heart, caused by original and actual sins revealed by the law word of God. God tells us what sin is. That's one of the reasons that the Bible is so despised, because the Bible is clear about what sin is and that God is holy. And you cannot reason that away or explain it away or make it passe or say that's old, old time. We don't live that way anymore. Those are all the kinds of excuses that have gone forth in every generation. So we look at verse 17 this morning. When Jesus had entered a house away from the crowd. Remember he had been preaching to the crowd and telling them this. Now he goes into a private setting with his disciples in a house. And his disciples ask him concerning the parable. I want you to recognize that. Jesus didn't tell a parable. But this is how they're confused about it. Oh, they're looking for a secret meaning. Oh, th th this means something other than what it obviously means. So in the privacy of a house with the disciples, Matthew tells us that Peter was the representative and the, and the spokesman for them. They were questioning Jesus all about the secret meaning of the parable. I mean, it can't be as plain as what Jesus said. There's got to be a secret meaning here. We want to get into the, the secret things. And Jesus was giving the plain basics of the gospel, something that's so important. It is necessary for us to understand the source of sin. And it's not in things. It's in the human heart. Now, unwittingly, the disciples show the influence of those very traditions of the elders by missing the obvious point of Jesus' teaching. The traditions of the elders were inherited teachings. Uh, originally, they were passed down orally until they were later, after the time of Jesus, written down. But these uh, oral teachings and these inherited, uh, teach, these inherited teachings, these traditions about the meaning of Scripture were increasingly elaborated in applications of external man-made rules and rituals based on a false interpretive foundation of human-centered abilities and loopholes. That's why Jesus was so irate with the Pharisees and the scribes. That's why elsewhere Jesus says, you make all these rules and you, you levy heavy burdens upon people that crush their soul. And you don't lift them with your little finger. You look for the loopholes. Yeah, Jesus was incensed by their hypocrisy, the binding of conscience and the effect it had on people. It would seem that the disciples mistakenly assumed that Jesus was following in this same tradition, just simply adding his ideas or his interpretation, uh, rather than connecting with Jesus' meaning 
which was to clarify his fulfilling and transferring the old covenant law, the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law of God into the new covenant gospel. That is astounding and profound, and we're still struggling with it. How Jesus, in fulfillment, ended and removed or replaced and then also transferred the old covenant law. The law of God is good. It serves as a purpose. We're told that the old covenant served as a schoolmaster. It, it was like a tutorial. It was like kindergarten for the people of God. That's astounding to us because we start reading the Old Testament, particularly the law of, uh, of the Pentateuch and the, Mo, uh, the uh, writings of Moses, and we're astounded by all the minutia. We, we don't even know what some of the Hebrew words mean. And the point is, Jesus fulfilled it all. He uses the two references to the two smallest characters of the Hebrew alphabet, the jot and the tittle. He says, I fulfill it all. Nothing went undone. If you would let that sink in, and then if you would further appreciate how Jesus transfers the meaning of the more... These are three classifications. Some people don't like them. I think they're excellent in, uh, in recognizing the old covenant law of God that was moral, that was ceremonial, and it was judicial. And how it is that through fulfillment and transferring this into the gospel and the new covenant, we have a, a better promises of God. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. A better covenant based on better promises. That's why I also get upset when people want to bring Old Testament, Old Covenant things into the New Covenant church. Let's see how they're fulfilled in Christ. There is an application. There's an abiding moral uh, uh, accountability. But isn't it wonderful to look into things like the ceremonies? That's what the, the writer of the Hebrews does sometimes with the, the uh, vestments of the Old Covenant priest. Talking about how Jesus fulfills all those things. It's exciting reading. Same thing regarding the judicial law of God. We, we don't have the imposition of the ju judicial law of God. It just doesn't overlay into the church of the new covenant. But the principles there are valuable and beneficial to us, particularly in understanding the nature of the judicial transaction for our justification. So these things are valuable and, and instructive, but they need to be seen as all having been fulfilled in Christ that doesn't mean that they're passe and of no value. It means that we look to see what the meaning is in Christ for us. It's very valuable. So the confusion and assumptions of Jesus' disciples here serves as a continuing caution to Christian ministers and believers in the church that inherited traditions can obscure and even contradict the plain meaning of Scripture Risking reinterpreting the gospel with add-ons. Uh, do you have examples of that? Are you aware of that? There are those who want to reinterpret the gospel with add-ons. They want to add on social political causes. Well, you've got to believe the gospel, but the gospel also means you've got to believe this in terms of social and political causes. They want to add on moral relativism. Well, we believe this about the gospel that Jesus was so compassionate, but we can't be bound by those old rules in terms of, of the uh, morals of that day. We have to reinterpret that in terms of our understanding and our lifestyle today. And, and it's more important that people love themselves and not be restricted by these old ideas of, of gender. Moral relativism, as an example. Political correctness ideologies. 
Look, uh, the, these words in the Bible are harsh. And so we need to do away with these words. This is hate speech to say that somebody's a sinner because they happen to live differently than you. You know, it's okay for them to want to escape through drugs. They're trying to find God their way. So, you know, you cannot just be ugly and talk to people this way and call them names. It's, it's calling them names to call them a sinner, etc. And then superstitions about super spirituality. Yeah, the gospel is good. I mean, Jesus did the gospel, but, but then there are other ways that from the gospel, you know, we can add, we need these disciplines. We need to go through these uh, uh, cleansing ceremonies. We need to go through these retreats, and we need to try these different methods by which we can have a super spirituality because, well, everybody knows the gospel. The things that Jesus is contending with here in the very basic form of dealing with his disciples who missed the point that sin is in the human heart and of the effective power of Christ through the gospel to change the human heart, is still what we're dealing with today because the human condition is the same in every generation. And God's word is timeless. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. Now I take this phrase to mean the basic commonality of religious impulses, which are common, which are cosmic and universal. You'll see uh, oftentimes even in uh, universities they'll have comparative religion uh, courses and they talk about the commonality. I even had a professor in one of our denominational schools tell me that she felt there was so much commonality uh, between uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that there were really three brothers. And this is in our own denominational uh, school where I was doing a master's. It's like, no, they're not. And it's not okay for you to say that. So there are those who, who think that these commonality and this overlay of the religious impulses, and Paul is saying, you know, that's not sufficient. You'll be cheated by trying to reduce our Christian faith to a commonality of religious impulse similar to other religions. He says, not, this is not according to Christ. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. That's an interesting word. We translate it, I don't know if your translation uses Godhead, but actually it means the divine nature. It means the essence of Godness. Jesus is God. That should be of no question or dispute for us. And yet it's still being argued. But in the incarnation, bodily, God is present in the wonderful miracle and mystery of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And there was only one, only Him. And so Paul goes on to say, and you are complete in Him, the one and only God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the head of all principality and power. You want to talk about power games? You want to talk about superfood? You want to talk about super spirituality? It's Jesus Christ. You're never going to be him. But you can be saved by him and kept by him and his power over all the powers and principalities throughout God's wide creation, seen and unseen. That brings us into verse 18. Jesus said to them, Are you thus without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? It seems like such a basic idea. They were confused about it. I think 
Because I've already told you the Bible addresses it so much that it's still an ongoing confusion. So Jesus protested that his disciples did not comprehend. Uh, Interestingly here, the word to understand or comprehend would be similar to our word synthesize. They didn't put it together. They didn't put Jesus' meaning together from his teaching. And he goes on to say that they didn't perceive. The, The Greek word here, perceive, actually means to take notes. They weren't attentive. They weren't taking notes. I've been really good to you all. I give you notes every Sunday. I don't even know if you take your notes home. That hurts my feelings if you don't. You should take note. Take note of what the Word of God means and what's being taught and preached. And so he was clarifying the difference between the physical and the spiritual human condition. They needed to put put it together to synthesize his teaching and they needed to take note and keep notes on what Jesus was teaching. So the disciples demonstrated a persistent disposition among humans. I know that you understand or you know the scriptural story. I hope and and trust that you believe it. That from the scripture record, original sin resulted from disobeying God's prohibition about eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I'm not going to elaborate on this. I'm just going to give you a passing observation. The only fruit that's mentioned in that context is figs. Because they sought fig leaves to cover their naked bodies. And I'm not going to tell you that figs are the forbidden fruit. Because I love figs. But whatever it was, it was in the eating that they disobeyed God. And there was something within that prohibited fruit. And there was also something in the tree of life that they were restricted from after having taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They ate it. All right? So what does that mean? It means there remains a subconscious tension over the relationship between human life and physical food. There remains a subconscious tension. That's why there has been an age-old seeking for the secret power food of the gods. In every culture, in, in every people, in one way or the other, it can be highly refined or the most base. But that subconscious tension consists of awareness at some level that we need the tree of life. The relationship between human life and physical food, no matter how it's disguised or corrupted in the human imagination, there is an awareness that we need something to save us. We need something. And what's the most available? Food. There must be a food. There must be the power food. There must be the secret food. If we can just find it. It may be disguised in any number of ways. Maybe it's the fountain of youth. Maybe it's some other means by which uh, food is transferred into life-giving eternal power. Like, let's say that when we have bread and wine, it's going to put Jesus back on the cross. And every time that we take the bread and the wine, that it turns into his actual body and blood. And that somehow transmutes us into godness. Millions of people around the world believe that superstition. You know, the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper, it's bread and wine. It doesn't change into anything else. You know what? It identifies the bread and the wine as a symbol? The words of institution. And do you know how God uses the bread and the wine as a symbol and the words of institution identify what Jesus Christ did for our salvation? Do you know how God uses that? By faith. 
See, taking outwardly the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper, even with the words of institution, the words of institution are not a magic charm. It's not a magical incantation. It's an identification. This is what this bread and this is what this wine means symbolically. And this is what God does through faith. Now that's liberating. That'll set your heart free. That'll ease your mind. That'll give you hope beyond this life. The balance of this section, the second part of um, verse 18 Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? And then going on, verses 19 through 23, because, Jesus says, it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, Deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. We need to heed what Jesus says here. You see, Jesus reverses the false assumptions upon which man-made rules and rituals are based regarding the outward things, especially when they misinterpret the Old Covenant food laws. Uh, Why do we still hear persistently people talking about we need to really uh, follow the Old Testament food laws? Look, I don't care if, if you prefer to, to eat kosher food. You know, I prefer food that doesn't have hormones and, and chemical additives and all that stuff. I don't want that junk. But I know that's good for my body. It does nothing for my soul. And for those who want to say there's something special, I hear it all the time that we need to go back and re-examine the old covenant food laws, that, the, that we should adopt them, that they're good for us, that they mean something. To, no, they don't. They're past. They're gone. We're done with that. Now, you may eat forbidden things under the old covenant. It has no effect on your soul, although it may give you a stomachache. Well, that's different. And so this is what Jesus is dealing with here. Jesus profoundly turns the issue inside out by observing sin is not in outward things like food that go into the human body and then are processed out again. He gives a very common example here. You eat food, your body processes it, and and then processes it out. It's amazing, isn't it? I think it's amazing. And I know we can't go into so much detail because we're polite company and we want to be careful what we say, but that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, it's very basic. You eat stuff, your body gets the nutrients out, and then what's left goes goes away and it doesn't poison you. Isn't it amazing to you That you can eat stuff and not be poisoned? You eat stuff without even thinking about it because you think it's okay. Somebody else ate it and it's okay. Did you know there was a time when people were being poisoned by tomatoes? Not because tomatoes are bad, but because the acid in the tomatoes leached the lead out of the uh, pewter dinnerware that they were using. Uh, Pewter is made, I think, of tin and lead. It has some combination, but it has lead in it. People were eating tomatoes, but the acid in the tomatoes were leaching the lead out, and they were getting lead poisoning. Not because tomatoes are bad, but because it's not good to eat off lead-based dinnerware. So you see, we go through all these things, and we learn about stuff, and the important thing here is that sin is inside the human heart from which proceed outward sinful thoughts, 
words and actions. That's where Jesus is driving with this. These are common in human experience. The things that Jesus lists out here are common in human experience. You can hear them every night on the news broadcast. They're common to human experience, but they are morally evil as revealed by God. You see, that's where the conflict comes. We don't want God to tell us what's morally evil. We know that these things are common, adulteries and fornications and murders and thefts. It goes on all the time. Jesus is telling us God's view on it. The newscaster tells you what's happening in your neighborhood. Jesus says this is how God sees it. It is morally evil. It's an offense to God, and God will judge sin and hold it accountable. And that's what we don't want to hear. At least the world doesn't want to hear that. I want you to note a couple of things here. One... That the scriptures record several times, and we said the Apostle Peter was the spokesman for the group over in Matthew's uh, um, narrative of this same event. The scriptures record for us several times that Peter struggled over this very teaching. Do you remember that? Peter was in a struggle over this. The Holy Spirit gave him a vision when he was called to the Gentile Cornelius' house. And God gave him a vision of the sheet coming down with all the matter of unclean food. And they, he told Peter, rise up and eat. And Peter said, I'm not eating that stuff. I've never eaten that stuff. I'm not going to eat that corrupt stuff. And God said, you don't call unclean what I call clean. Now, there was an image there in, in, the, in the vision to teach Peter about the gospel, but also an application that was come, come later on as Peter was at the Jerusalem council. And they were disputing and discussing about these very things. And then remember what happened when Peter went up to Antioch where the gospel was re, uh, received among the Gentiles and there was revival there and Peter, uh, Paul was preaching and the gospel was being celebrated by the Gentile believers and Peter went up there and he was eating with them and maybe he was even entering into their, their dancing or, and enjoying and celebrating the things of God and the gospel. And then some of the leaders from Jerusalem, the Jewish a converted church came up to where they were, and what did Peter do? <clears throat> I, I can't have anything to do with you. Look at how you're eating stuff and jumping around and dancing like you're happy. <sighs> Not going to have any of that. And what did Paul do? You hypocrite! Can I yell a little bit louder? What Paul said, you hypocrite! What do you say? Before these guys from Jerusalem came up, you were having a good time with these Gentile believers, recognizing the joy of the gospel among them. And now you separate yourself in this self-righteousness and this false application and misunderstanding and trying to turn us back under the old law? I think it's very interesting that the Jerusalem council, Peter said, men and brethren, neither we nor our ancestors could keep this stuff. Peter struggled with this. Does that, it seems so common to us. Do you know that, that you have a benefit that you might not even be aware of? I think it's maybe kind of like a health, health benefit. But do you know that when we go to the grocery store and we purchase our chicken or our beef or whatever it is, the meats that we enjoy eating, they're already processed, they're already butchered for us. We don't have to do that. Do you know that one interesting thing about how they're processed that, that's not common in all the world? The blood is let out of them. We typically eat uh, meat of various animals that has most of the blood drained out of it. That's not true in other places in the world. And whether you like or don't like that, I don't think that applies to us in terms of necessarily the gospel. 
But I think that it's an outworking of things that the Bible influenced that we just maybe are not aware of. So there's a lot of other application about these things, but, but what I want to point out to you is that Peter struggled with this. The Apostle Peter struggled with this. The Apostle Paul writes about it very often. I also want you to note the second part of verse 19. Jesus says, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated. But then there's this last um, uh, clause, or phrase, I guess, of verse 19, thus purifying all foods. Now there's a a question about whether Jesus said this or whether this is an editorial edition by Mark. Um, I think it's probably an editorial comment by Mark, who is looking at this after the fact. Uh, It doesn't mean that everything edible is good. And, and thus purifying all foods, meaning that you can eat anything you want to and that it's nourishing. That's not the point. The point that, that is being made in this editorial comment is that all kinds of foods are cleared from Old Testament restrictions. All kinds of food are now re- cleared from Old Testament uh, uh, restrictions. Don't let anybody try to bind your conscience over eating shrimp. If you like shrimp, eat it. You know, you might. my preference is for wild-caught shrimp and not farmed shrimp. <laughs> That's also my same preference with fish. Vaughn, you can tell you, we go to the grocery store. The people at the fish counter don't even want to see me coming. Say, is that wild-caught? Is that wild-caught? Where, where did that come from? I don't want... F- if you've looked into the farming techniques of fish, you'd probably agree with me. You don't want farm-raised fish. Uh, okay, I'm going to stop there. Point is, the point is... We need to keep the balance of what Scripture teaches us. And when we have this editorial comment in verse 19, it doesn't mean everything is good for food. It just means that there are all kinds of of foods that are no longer restricted because we're not under the old covenant. Can we celebrate that? I told you that we're coming to the end of chapter 7 and on into chapter 8 and 9, and there is a celebration. We ought to want to have a party when we come to the end of chapter 7 on into chapter 8. Yes, we should want to have a gospel party. For the liberation that we have in Christ. Don't let anybody put you back under these restrictions. Now, Jesus does not give us an exhaustive list, but a grievous sampling of the sins that are sourced in the human heart. I wish we would pay more attention to this than we would about whether we can eat shrimp or not. Okay? About the grievous sins that are sourced in the human heart. And he tells us, that they come out of an evil thoughts. Now, this word evil thoughts, or the, the combination, evil thoughts, do you know what that means literally from the Greek? Talking to yourself, a self-dialogue. These things come out of your trying to convince yourself that sin is okay. Have you ever, have you ever lost an argument with yourself over temptation? I know somebody who has, who had a dialogue with themselves over temptation and lost the argument. And sinned. I'm not going to tell you who that is. Do you have dialogue with yourself? Do you, do you argue with yourself when it comes to temptation? Do you have this self-conversation going on trying to approve of sin? I know it's been, been made into a, a comic uh, display in the cartoon that has the angel and the devil on one shoulder. It's not a bad image and idea. 
of the idea that Jesus is saying here, that you enter into a dialogue with yourself, oh, go ahead and do that. No, don't do that. That offends God. That's against the word of God. Oh, that'll be okay. God understands. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here, entering into a self-dialogue over this matter of temptation. And he says that this self-dialogue tries to coach immoral behavior and actions. And he identifies them. I want you to point, this may not be as aware or as evident to you, but in the text, there are 12 things that Jesus says by example. The first six of the things that Jesus says are plural in form, and they represent practices. These plural forms of practices that people do. People are engaged in adulteries. Adulteries are unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. We know what adulteries are. It's specified for us in Scripture. The next one is fornication. Fornications, plural. Fornication is the practice that is uh, not just limited to adultery, although adultery is included in that. Fornications go beyond that. Uh, The fornications, the root word, is the word from which we get uh, pornography and we get the word prostitution. comes from this word porneia. And from fornication, it's a broader term. Murders. Turn on the news. People kill other people violently, not in self-defense. Murders. Intentional killing of another person. Thefts. Taking what's not yours. Stealing. Thefts. Covetous desires. People constantly are plying their covetous desires. They're fixating on things. That's what drives so much of the disaffection and dissatisfaction in our uh, consumer-oriented culture of got to have more things, got to have more and better. I want more and better. Got to have the next uh, 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 iteration of the, of the phone that has X more power. And it's okay. If you need a phone with X more power, fine. But if you fixate on that, in terms of what Jesus is saying here about covetous desires, that's wrong. It feeds our covetousness. And then the word wickedness is also plural, and it could well be described as or translated as malicious acts. Going around intentionally, purposefully, uh, being harmful to somebody else. It doesn't mean just physically harming them. It means harming their reputation, setting traps, wanting to... Uh, bring disrepute upon someone else. Malicious acts. It can be vandalism and destroying people's properties. It can be gossip and trying to undermine somebody's reputation. Those are the first six plurals that identify practices that Jesus says come out of the heart and from this dialogue with self intent on uh, disobeying and rebelling against God. And then the following six are in the singular form. They indicate a heart disposition or controlling habits. And here in these six singular forms, Jesus starts out with deceit. You know the root word for deceit means bait or decoy? Now, if you're not a fisherman or a hunter, that might not mean as much to you. But hunters use baits and hunters use decoys to bring in their quarry close enough to where they can trap them. And so this is the idea here. What comes out of the human heart are deceitful plans to lure in and take advantage of others. Lewdness comes out of the human heart. The word lewdness has to do with salacious, unrestrained passions. Throwing off and going to live with the passions and of the flesh. 
We have growing examples of that in these marches and parades and Mardi Gras and carnival. Uh, Vanya was reminding me that carnival means a festival of the flesh. And so this unrestrained throwing off of, uh, of any inhib- in- inhibitions as far as passions go and displaying ourselves lewdly, and that's growing in our culture. Evil eye. Evil eye doesn't mean trying to put a spell on somebody. Evil eye means the focused jealousy and envy that burns. You can't take your eyes off of that intent resentment. Blasphemy. Now, blasphemy here, we're familiar with this term, but I think in this context it means the lesser blasphemy of human against human blasphemy, and it means premeditated slander and gossip. When you defame somebody else, when you gossip or slander them to undermine their reputation. Pride. Pride means arrogant. It actually is a word that means to be over and beyond self-importance. So we have the, the term oftentimes puffed up with pride, inflated, an inflated ego. That's very descriptive of what the word means, to be overly uh, um, conscious of your self-importance. I'm better than everybody else. I'm smarter than everybody else. And then the last word that Jesus uses here is foolishness. The word foolishness doesn't mean silly. It doesn't mean uh, acting in a uh, some kind of... Uh, um, slapstick way. Foolish is morally based. It means without moral balance. It means intentionally divisive with a mindset against the moral law of God. The fool has said in his heart, no to God. No. will not have God telling me what to do. That's a fool. Not someone who's cracking jokes and being silly. It's someone who is intentionally divisive in their mindset and will try to draw you into that too. I know someone who told someone, God doesn't mean that. God knows that in the day that you take of that special food, you'll be like him. Foolish, intentionally divisive, set against the will of God. And I think that Jesus concludes here using foolish as a, as a collective description of all what, of what he has said. All of these evil things come from within and defile a man. So this is very basic to our understanding of the gospel. To Christian ministers and believers in the church, this scriptural teaching that sin is sourced in the heart and not in outward things no matter how elaborately construed by the traditions of the elders, Jesus tells us what is essential to the right synthesis and the right and notable meaning of the gospel. And he starts here with something so basic, but is still contended and resisted and uh, becomes a matter of, of blinded superstition by millions of people around the world today. And you need to appreciate that you have been brought out of that darkness. If you've been translated into the kingdom of the, of the Son of God, into the light of the Word of God, we take many things for granted. And what seems so basic to us today, and, and my telling you that sin is not in things, sin is in the human heart. 
And what Jesus taught us here, there is no superpower food with magic powers that you can find. Don't be fooled by that. Don't be taken in by it. There are a million of people who are in the darkness of superstition over these very things. Be thankful that Jesus has redeemed you and has freed you and given you the liberty of the children of God to know these things and to walk in light as he is in the light. We'll continue on in uh, the rest of uh, chapter 7 and hopefully into the the remainder of uh, Mark's gospel uh, in the weeks to come. Our uh, concluding 